0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with lawyer and author Anthony Dapperin. Anthony joined me from Hong Kong to discuss the political situation in Hong Kong. We discuss the electoral changes to Hong Kong's Legislative Council, which were created at the National People's Congress in China. We also discuss the recent jailing of pro-democracy activists we get to chat about a whole range of topics relating to politics on this show, and one of the areas which I've been absolutely fortunate to cover, and it is such a significant part of our region and our neighbourhood where we live, is Hong Kong, and Anthony Dapperin has been so generous with his time many times before to sit down and have a chat with us to really explore the depth and complexities of these political issues in Hong Kong, which are now really social issues, things that people are confronting on a daily basis. So I welcome back onto the program Anthony Dapperin, who is also the author of a number of books, but his latest book is called City on Fire. Hi there, Anthony, and thanks so much for coming back on the show.
1: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Since we last spoke, which was right before Chinese New Year, I think it was, a lot has happened. And I've certainly been following what's been happening, but there seems to have been a kind of cascading of events uh, since that point. It would be perhaps pertinent to talk about The significant event that happens in mainland China where the Chinese Communist Party get together to come up with party policy and then to enact those policies into law And some of these policies are very much policies that will affect Hong Kong. So I wondered whether given the the recent Congress in China, could we have a quick chat about some of the key policy areas um, that directly affect Hong Kong that have come out of that recent Congress in China?
1: Yeah, certainly, and and just by way of background, this is the the, the National People's Congress, China's parliament that that meets um, for its formal session once a year in March. And I guess if you want to think of an analogy, you could think of it as sort of China's federal parliament, and then uh, the Legislative Council here in Hong Kong is something akin to the sort of the state parliament. So we have our own legislature here in Hong Kong that's supposed to make the laws for Hong Kong, and under the one country, two systems agreement under which Hong Kong was returned to China, the only things that Beijing's National People's Congress should be making laws about for Hong Kong are matters of defence, foreign affairs and, and and things outside Hong Kong's autonomy. But other than that, they shouldn't be interfering in Hong Kong. Now, Last year, this is the body that introduced that notorious national security law that we that we've been talking about, and that that uh, that in itself was a was a big surprise because people thought that that this is not the kind of thing that that the National People's Congress should have the power to do or should be doing for Hong Kong. And I suppose people at the time thought that it was sort of a sort of a one off, and uh, and and something like that wouldn't happen again. But um, uh, this year there was again something of a surprise, and and the National People's Congress stepped in again. Um in relation to Hong Kong, and in March, they announced um, a, a massive overhaul of the Hong Kong electoral system, um, the, the system by which Hong Kong chooses both the chief executive, the head of the government here, uh, and elects its, its legislative council, which was always, at best, only semi-democratic, and now will be even less democratic after these reforms.
0: What exactly are the changes in the sense of how things currently operate and what they'll mean moving forward electorally in practice in Hong Kong?
1: So for Hong Kong's uh, legislature, the Legislative Council, previously it was sort of half-democratic. Um, so there were 70 seats and, and 35 of those were chosen by uh, by what we call geographical constituencies, which are the same thing as sort of seats for the lower house that, would, that we would have uh, in, in elections in Australia. So people vote for their local member. Um, there were another five seats that were sort of representatives of, of the district councils, of local councils and again everyone in Hong Kong had the right to, to vote for those five members who represented the various local councils and then the other three of the, sorry, the other 30 of the 70 were whats are called functional constituencies and functional constituencies um, are various special interest groups effectively so every different industry um, and various uh, professions and various other special interest groups would have seats dedicated to them and only people from those special interest groups would be able allowed to vote. And because these tended to be business groups or professions or sort of local uh, organisations that tended to be very pro-Beijing or sort of pro-government, that was the means by which the government effectively managed to keep control of the legislature. Now, even that sort of only semi-democratic system wasn't enough for Beijing. And, and I think part of what scared them was that in 2019, at sort of at the height of the protests um, in that year, we had district council elections uh, here. The government, I think, was expecting there'd be some kind of silent majority that would stand up um, and, and would apparently have been you know, sick of the protests and would vote strongly in favour of the government. But it didn't work out that way. Um, in fact, the exact opposite happened. And there was a landslide victory for all of the, the pro-democracy candidates who won pretty much, um, who won control of every single council and won pretty much every seat. And I think that really frightened Beijing. So they've decided to completely gut the electoral system here. So for the legislative council now, there there will be 90 seats rather than 70 seats. But only 20 out of the 90 seats will be chosen by popular vote by those geographical constituencies. And then there will be 30 of the 90 seats going to those functional constituencies. And then 40 of the 90 seats will be going to a group that's called the election committee that is effectively a group of Beijing... Friendly um, or Beijing-appointed officials. So uh, f- effectively, the, Beijing is stepping in and saying, at least 40 of the 90 seats in your in your parliament will now be effectively appointed by us. And there's a very heavy weighting that will ensure that uh, most of the other seats will end up going to other pro-Beijing parties. On top of that, they've introduced a new screening system. So before anyone can run for an election now, they have to get past what's called the uh, the, the, the the nomination committee. After they get past the nomination committee, they also have to go through a special national security screening by the uh, national security agencies here to ensure that, um, as the government's been putting it, only patriots rule Hong Kong. The suspicion is that anyone, basically, who's been involved in any kind of protest activity or dissent or any kind of pro-democracy activism will be screened out due to their alleged risk to national security. Um, And so so it really is just basically an overhaul of the complete electoral system to mean that there will effectively exclude the pro-democracy parties and activists from participating, really, in in politics again.
0: Well, I mean, it sounds like a very comprehensive, sweeping change to the electoral system. Mm. I wonder, given that you said Beijing's role is really to make laws relating to defence and foreign affairs, number one, are they technically able to make these types of changes in a legal sense and number two were they even under threat of losing power or control under the previous system
1: as to your first question, that technically they can do it because they have the power to amend the basic law, which is Hong Kong's constitution. So they are doing this through an amendment to the basic law. Um, they are not necessarily following the the procedure that, that should be undertaken for that, which is to have Hong Kong's own legislature vote on that. But at uh, any event, I think the, the reality is that, that Beijing has the power to do whatever they want in Hong Kong. And so the technicalities, I think, are not much of a, an issue for them. So that's... Uh, you know, there's not going to be any, any challenge to their decision, I think. And I'm sorry, I've forgotten the second question. What was the, oh, second the second
0: question? <laughs> question was, were they even under any threat of losing oh. power or influence in the Legislative Council as it was previously formulated? Well, there was
1: they were certainly afraid of that. Um, and I think the District Council election result was really a big shock to them. Uh, and just by way of background, traditionally, the, the District Councils have all been pro-Beijing controlled. The pro-Beijing, pro-government parties have traditionally done very well in those elections. So that that landslide victory to the Democrats was a big wake-up call to Beijing, and I think they were afraid that there was a risk that they might end up losing their majority lock control on, on the legislature. And I think that's part of what what prompted these um, these reforms is to really make sure that that wouldn't happen.
0: This is just one very significant example of changes that we've seen made, and we have seen the national security laws passed as well, and that's something we looked at in great depth previously. And obviously, at the time, we were still somewhat unsure last year as to how this would affect the everyday life of Hong Kongers, not just in their freedom of political speech and activities, but also around how their day-to-day life might be and just how far and wide these laws would be used in terms of cracking down on culture or trying to steer certain cultural discussions in a a way. And I have seen just recently there was an article around a first National Security Education Day, Mm. which was imposed by the national security law and was really focused on Hong Kong children at school promoting that law and, I guess, the cultural norms or expectations of citizens in relation to that law. I wonder if you could share with us whether it's that example or other examples of where you think the national security law has started to make itself felt
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, And this is all with the background that when the national security law was first introduced, the government tried to reassure everyone that this would only affect a very small minority of extremists and and no one else would would have anything to worry about from this law. But But it clearly is. A, a sweeping change to, to Hong Kong society as a whole, and I think an attempt by Beijing to try and remake Hong Kong society. Um, and so that example that you cited um, of National Security Education Day is a really um, uh, important one. One of the most notable things about the protests in 2019 is that they were very much led by Hong Kong's youth. Um, this wasn't sort of the uh, the old guard, sort of pro-democracy people who'd sort of been activists since the the pre-handover days, um, there were these were university students, uh, people in their twenties, um, and, and even high school students, and there were many notable protests, actually outside high schools, where um, the the kids before school would would link hands in these uh, so-called human chains and, and and stand outside the school gates, linking um, one school to the next, sort of through the neighbourhoods. Very moving sights, actually, to see these young people so um, so invested in the future of their city and caring really passionately about the. These kind of issues um, uh, and, and you know you'd think in a way any government would love to have a, a youth that was so passionate and so engaged um, but China didn't see that this way, that way they, they, they saw this as a, as a threat um, and they were clearly worried that they were losing Hong Kong's youth um, and, and that, that the city was going to be a city um, with a whole generation of, of, of rebels as Beijing saw it. And so this National Security Education Day um, is, I think, the part of an ongoing attempt to overhaul the education system in Hong Kong um, and introduce significant uh, sort of pro- pro-China, pro-Beijing, patriotic content. And so there were a whole series of activities around this day a couple of weeks ago to educate Hong Kong's youth about China, about the importance of national security, about the importance of the the police keeping everyone safe. All sorts of messages designed to change the narrative around both the protests of 2019 and around the idea of what it means to be a Hong Konger in the context of, of, of China as a whole. So that's one I think really important and ongoing cultural change, as, as changes are also made to, to school curriculums and, and, and things like, um, you know, protest slogans and singing protest songs are banned in schools, and talking about politics is banned in schools, and all these sorts of things to overhaul the education system. The arts has been another perhaps not so surprising target. We have a, a, a very large new art museum being built here called um, M Plus, which are, people are very much looking forward to as potentially being a a game changer, putting a world-class, very large arts institution. It's going to be the size of, of the Tate Modern in London, including all its various annexes. Um, so a very large facility with a, uh, the, the foundation of it being a, a donation of some of the most influential contemporary Chinese art from the last 30 years. And so people were were fairly excited about this sort of edgy contemporary Chinese art that couldn't be shown in the mainland, um, now having a home in this new world-class museum in Hong Kong. Well, uh, surprise, surprise, that uh, institution um, had came under criticism by some pro-Beijing politicians who singled out some artwork by the artist Ai Weiwei, who I'm sure uh, all of you have heard of, a famous dissident artist. Um, uh, A number of his works are in the collection that that M Plus will will be holding, and these pro-Beijing parties sort of called out these works and sort of said the, these are unpatriotic works. These are works that potentially breach the national security law. You know, will M plus agree that they're not going to display these works? And this is really a, a great shock to I'm, I'm sure the, the administrators of the museum as well as to the art sector as a whole here, because people had relied upon the government's assurances that things like freedom of expression, freedom of speech, wouldn't be affected by the national security law, and we would never have expected that suddenly art galleries would be told the kind of art they can and can't display in Hong Kong. But um, it, this did seem to be the, the message that was coming out from these pro-Beijing politicians. So that, that hasn't sort of reached the end of the discussion and we'll see where that ends up. But it was another indication of, of the kind of changes that Beijing is seeking to make to Hong Kong and to Hong Kong's previously very much um, free society in terms of things like expression and speech and those sorts of things.
0: That is really concerning and obviously Ai Weiwei has a long history with the Chinese mainland government and Communist Party. So, yeah, it will be certainly interesting to see how that pans out. Um, One of the other elements to this, which has been perhaps slightly more in the news, making global headlines, has been around these kind of mass arrests of a number of activists and people engaged in the electoral system in different ways. And we did see an arrest of about 55 people (laughs) who were associated with some electoral primaries, that uh, were being held. And they were broadly pro-democratic type of people. And we have seen a number of others arrested for different so-called offences Under the national security laws. And we've now seen, as time has gone on, these people get to court, have their day in court, and then um, in some cases be found guilty for the charge that they've received. So I wondered whether you could talk us through some of the most significant figures who have been arrested. I did note that they spanned a wide range of ages, people including Martin Lee, who's aged 82. Jimmy Lai is aged 73. So there have been some quite prominent and older Hong Kongers who are very well known prominent figures in society who've also been arrested and received guilty charges and sentences for jail.
1: Yeah. And I should just add that sort of part of, it's been a real feature of, of the last year or so since the protests have ended and I think will be a feature of Hong Kong going forward for, for, for at least several years to come and that is this constant parade of arrests and trials um, and I think it's part of the tactic of the authorities to continually harass the opposition and activists and dissidents by continually arresting them on various charges and putting them through the legal system again and again and again. So someone like, like Jimmy Lai who's a, a a a pro-democracy media um, magnate. He owns um, the largest pro-democracy newspaper here, the Apple Daily. He has been charged with numerous charges under the national security law, um, in addition under the the public order ordinance, which is the laws that govern protest. Um, He has already been found guilty and sentenced on some charges. He's also awaiting trial on numerous other charges he's going to be tied up in the legal system, I think, for, for many years to come and, and remanded in custody as those, as those trials work their way through. And this is what a classic, what I call a lawfare approach that the government is using just to really tie up the opposition in these court cases. But a couple of the really notable ones, uh, the, the first was the one that involved um, a, a handful of really the most senior elder sort of statesmen of the Hong Kong democracy movement, including, as you said, Martin Lee in, in his 80s, a senior barrister. QC, um, who founded the Hong Kong Democratic Party, he's been an activist for, for decades here. And indeed, I remember back in the in the early '90s when the the handover was looming, um, Martin Lee regularly making trips to Australia and, and speaking in Australia, uh, encouraging people to continue to pay attention to Hong Kong and to to ensure that Hong Kong didn't lose its rights and freedoms. And I remember hearing him speak I, I in Melbourne, uh, you know, some 30 years ago. And, and and he's been really active all the way through till now. And it's quite quite sad to see some of the things that he was afraid of then now coming to pass. Um, so along with Martin, there was Margaret Ng, another senior barrister, Albert Ho, another former chairman of the Democratic Party, all these people in their, in their 60s and 70s, um, Jimmy Lai as well, and a number of other activists. Now, they were all charged. In relation to a protest, uh, One of just one of the many protests that occurred in 2019, this particular protest happened in, in August. It was a very large protest. Organizers said that over a million people took part in this one, um, certainly it was at least in the hundreds of thousands this particular protest the police had authorised a rally in a park but had not had said that a march would not be allowed but because there were hundreds of thousands of people turned out it physically wasn't possible for them all to fit into the park and so these, uh, these uh, activist leaders decided to lead the protesters out of the park in a march which the police declared illegal and so fast forward to a few weeks ago um, these people were, were charged as being the, the leaders of an unauthorized march um, and were found guilty and some of them were sentenced to jail. one of them, a long hair quaker, a very prominent protester activist was sentenced to 18 months jail in relation to organizing this protest. Others were sentenced um, for various amounts. Uh, thankfully, the older defendants, so Martin, uh, Margaret, and Albert, were given suspended sentences. So they were found guilty. They were given jail sentences, but then they weren't remanded in jail. They were given suspended sentences and released, which was, uh, I guess, one small blessing. But but the r- reality is, we have all these people found guilty and given jail sentences of 12 months to 18 months for for, for really participating in a in a protest that hundreds of thousands of other people also took part in. And so a very odd outcome. Uh, The the other really notable trial has been the one of the pro-democracy politicians who took part in the primary that you also referred to. And so this was last July when there were supposed to be elections held last year in September. These were ultimately cancelled due to the the pandemic, the government said. But I think we all suspect the real reason was because they were afraid they were going to lose it. But in preparation for that, the various pro-democracy parties decided to coordinate their efforts. And so, rather than competing against one another, um, they held a primary election where uh, all the various pro-democracy aspiring candidates would run. Anyone from the community was welcome to cast a ballot um, to decide which candidates they wanted to run. And then the idea would be that the people that got the most votes would then nominate themselves for the election. As part of this plan, uh, several, a number of the candidates also said that if they were successfully elected, they would aim to win a majority in the Legislative Council, and if they did that they would exercise their powers under the basic law to try and veto the government's budget bills and there's a mechanism under the basic law by which if the if the LegCo vetoes the budget bills and they can force the chief executive to resign and can force a, effectively force a change of government so all entirely legal all within the the processes set out in the in the basic law but this plan really infuriated Beijing. Um, And I think they also saw it as an opportunity to score another hit against the pro-democracy movement. And so what the authorities here said was that that plan to veto the budget and force the government to resign was effectively a subversive plan, a plan to subvert state power, and therefore that the entire primary election itself was a plot to subvert state power. And as a result, they charged every single candidate who ran in that primary election under the national security law for subversion. And that was ended up with, as you say, some 55 people being arrested purely for having organized and, and attempted to win an election, effectively. Um, so 47 of those had committal hearings, um, formally arrested and had committal hearings um, uh, earlier in the year, a really remarkable hearing then took place where you had 47 defendants in the one court sort of hearing their, their bail applications and, and the trials went sort of late into the night, day after day. We had defendants sort of passing out because they didn't have sufficient food and water. Uh, it was really a, 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 an awful sight, a sort of week-long trial. And at the end of that, most of those uh, defendants, almost 40 of them, have been remanded in custody. Now, they haven't been formally found guilty yet. that they, um, are, are awaiting formal trial, but um, the national security law says that um, un- unless, unless the court is comfortable that you're not going to uh, continue to threaten national security, they are required to deny bail. And so most of those defendants have been denied bail, and they're going to be sitting in jail now, formally awaiting a trial that will take place supposedly sometime later this year. But, but what the, the, the effective result of this whole process is that the entire opposition party, effectively, every candidate who was planning to... To run in that election under the pro-democracy banner has now been arrested and most of them are sitting in jail awaiting trial. So setting aside all, all the various electoral reforms that have been undertaken, there is effectively no one left from the Democratic side to, to run in the elections because they've all been arrested.
0: Yes, well, it's a pretty um, tough call to then try and recruit people to do that. Exactly. <laughs> given what the obvious repercussions are. Yeah. One of the other, I guess, critical features of any democracy, at least, is a free press and yeah. free journalism. And you just mentioned there, of course, Jimmy Liar being the founder of the Apple Daily has been caught up in this. There's also been other journalists caught up. I did note that an award-winning journalist, Bao Choi, has also been arrested and tried and now found guilty of a crime for using a public database to expose police failings in Hong Kong and apparently is the first time a member of the media has faced prosecution in Hong Kong for the act of reporting it seems that the actual offence of looking through a public database of car registrations is what has led to that
1: yeah, that's right. Now, Bao Choi was a, a producer at RTHK, which is sort of Hong Kong's equivalent of the ABC. It's the government broadcaster. And she was working on a, a documentary about the Long attacks. Now, just to remind listeners, during the protests of 2019 out in a, a suburb of Hong Kong called Yunlong, there was an incident where a, a number of uh, effectively pro government, pro-Beijing, triad-linked gang members attacked protesters as they were coming home from the protests one night in in July. Um, A very violent attack unarmed protesters and sort of innocent civilians being beaten with bamboo canes and and rods and clubs and things by this sort of pro-Beijing mob. And the government has really never fully given an accounting of that incident. There have been very few arrests in connection with it, no convictions yet. And so it's it's very much an incident that weighs very heavily, I think, on, on, on people in Hong Kong and something the government's never accounted for. So she was working on a documentary about that incident. And one of the things she was trying to do was to connect the cars the vehicles that had transported um, the gang members to that protest with their owners to try and figure out perhaps who was behind these attacks so classic investigative journalism and she was accessing a, a public database of, of car registration plates to do that um, now previously this was completely legal and indeed there was a, a box on the form that allowed the media to tick to, to if they were sort of to, under the sort of the, the question what purpose are you making this request for and they could tick uh, media now the the government changed the form, took media off the form, and left a category that said "other," but also said that you should only access this database for for traffic-related purposes. So Bao Choi ticked the other box, um, made her application, obtained the information, and used that to great effect in her documentary. Um, but then what the government effectively did was to come back and say that she had made a false statement by by ticking this other box when she was actually using it for for media purposes and media purposes is not one of the permitted purposes for accessing this database. So, again, this sort of lawfare, using the legal system to harass people that the government um, is unhappy with. Um, and I think the fact that she was making this documentary about the, the Yunlong attacks and it's something that the government didn't want to be further exposed in public led to them prosecuting her um, and finding her guilty. Um, thankfully, she received only a 6,000 Hong Kong dollar fine, so that's what the equivalent of about a 1,000 Australian dollar fine. Um, and wasn't put into jail. But um, it's a it's a real, um, it sort of sends a real chill through the entire journalistic community here. Um, firstly, no one's going to be accessing that database again um, okay. for journalistic purposes. Um, and second, I think everyone's going to be very carefully watching their step whenever they're carrying out these sorts of in- investigative reporting in the future um, to, to make sure they very scrupulously um, toe the line and, and, and don't uh, inadvertently break any laws, because I think it looks like the government's going to um, you know, really be scrutinising the media sector very closely.
0: Absolutely. I'm talking with Anthony Dapperin, who's an author and lawyer based in Hong Kong, and we're talking about the political situation in Hong Kong at the moment. Anthony, do you think, having talked about so many of these areas of crackdown, suppression, threats and suspicion around people who may do seemingly innocuous things and perhaps not even think that it could be caught up in these types of national security laws, has this led to a societal change in the way that people, Hong Kongers, interact with each other on a daily basis? Has it led to any sense that people don't feel free to express themselves even with people that they trust? Uh,
1: yes, absolutely. There's been a, a, a chill that you can feel uh, sort of g- coming down around uh, around society. Uh, and there's sort of two particular ways that you notice that. The, the first one is that people are learning, perhaps in the way that people under totalitarian, authoritarian regimes all around the world learn, um, to speak in code. Uh, people no longer talk about these things directly for fear that it, it's going to lead to trouble for them and the people that they, they they're talking with, and so they sort of learn to to speak in code, to refer to things obliquely, to to sort of talk around these kind of topics. Um, and whenever you um are talking with someone that you don't know very well, there's a certain amount of of tiptoeing and and talking in code before you sort of establish where the other person stands politically. And so just this idea that people no longer feel that they're able to speak freely is very much the case now, and everyone is sort of learning to to tiptoe around these issues. And I think the second thing is that it is leading to this sort of, very quickly leading to this sort of low-trust society where people have this sense that, well, you don't know who you can trust, you're not sure who where people stand. The, the, the police launched a a national security um reporting hotline where you can phone up and, and snitch on people or you can report suspected breaches of the national security law. And that, that's the kind of thing that really undermines societal trust and, and gets people to begin sort of looking over their shoulder, wondering uh, what other people are doing, wondering what other people are saying. And so it, I think it really has very quickly had this societal impact that has put a chill through, through much of Hong Kong civil society. And so that's been a really unfortunate side effect of, of, of all of this.
0: Mm. Anthony, just finally, I noted that in the news has been mention of a Hong Kong-Singapore travel bubble. Mm. Um, And, of course, so many of us in the Asia-Pacific region haven't been able to travel up until now with Australia establishing its own travel bubble with New Zealand just recently. Some people have suggested that may lead to potentially a Hong Kong-Singapore-Australia travel bubble Opening up, and I wondered whether you thought there would be discussion or thought of for some people in Hong Kong needing a holiday or wanting to move, whether that's something that may even be in anyone's mind at the moment, given what's been happening and the kind of pressure that people might feel that they're under.
1: Yeah, very much. There's been a, um, a, a there's a lot of discussion uh, going on in Hong Kong at the moment around, you know, do we stay or go? Um, and that's one of the most common conversations that that, that you have at the moment. Um, that conversation has been largely directed sort of in connection with the UK because the UK have um, what's called a, a British national overseas status that they granted to uh, Hong Kong citizens at the time of the handover. And they are now allowing those BNO citizens a path to residency and citizenship ultimately in the UK so that's a, that's a path that that's very um, easy to take for a lot of people and I know many people who are who are either have already taken up that that option or are, or are considering doing it Australia is a bit trickier because I think Australia while they the Australian government has said they welcome um, immigration applications from Hong Kong and I think will favorably consider in particular skilled migrant applications they don't have the same sort of easy path that that, that, that sort of anyone can stroll in the door but certainly Australia is a, is a very popular Popular destination And already um, one of the most notable exiles from Hong Kong, Ted Hui, who is a, a former pro-democracy politician here, um, now a wanted man in Hong Kong under the national security law. Um, uh, he is now residing in Australia. And I think the, the Australian government facilitated him uh, getting to Australia, notwithstanding the various COVID restrictions. And so I think certainly mm-hmm. um, there is going to be, there's always been a, 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 a large Hong Kong community in, in, in Australia. And I, and I think that Australia will continue to be a place that um, is attractive for people who, for various reasons, feel that um, Hong Kong is, is no longer a place they want to live and I think in particular raise their, raise their families.
0: Mm. Anthony, just finally, looking to the future, I know it's kind of hard to crystal ball gaze, but given that so many things have happened and developed that perhaps were unexpected in the sense that you thought it surely wouldn't go that mm. far, do we have any indication of how much further things will progress
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it certainly doesn't feel like it's going to stop. I mean, I, I feel like Beijing is now quite determined to bring Hong Kong to heel and make Hong Kong the kind of place that they wanted to be in their image, which is you know, certainly still continuing to be a free market in terms of, of money, in terms of business and, and, and finance and capitalism and all those things, but not to be a free market of ideas and not to be a place where people can openly criticise the Chinese government, criticise the Communist Party, engage in any kind of activities that, that China feels undermines its interests. And I don't think that... They're going to stop with this crackdown, with these attacks on, on the free press and the education system and civil society, um, until that goal has been achieved. And I think that um, you know may be a, a very long time before that kind of complete
0: social revolution in Hong
1: Kong occurs. And I think we're going to just have to brace ourselves for for more in the meantime.
0: Anthony, it's just been really illuminating speaking with you and hearing about all of this. And uh, obviously, it's something that we'll have to keep an eye on from here in Australia and continue to cover and talk about with you. So thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your really valuable insights today.
1: You're welcome. It's always always a pleasure to chat.
0: I've just been chatting with author and lawyer and Hong Konger, Anthony Dapperin, and he has been talking with us about the political situation in Hong Kong, particularly how the national security laws have been affecting Hong Kongers, as well as those reforms to the Legislative Council in Hong Kong that were made and passed by the Chinese Congress and many other issues that are related to that.